0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Fugue for Thought podcast. I'm Alan, and uh, we have a slightly longer episode than usual today, so uh, I don't want to take too long here in the introduction, but um, I do want to remind everyone to have a look at the links in the description of each episode. It's information on each of our guests, their websites, Facebook, anything like that, anything they recommend, as well as where you can find me online, Facebook and the blog and all of those things. Um, Today's guest, Clipper Erickson, speaking about Nathaniel Debt, Um, another Kickstarter project that was uh, intriguing, compelling, and... um, I supported it, and a number of months later, I'm listening to the music, and I thought, I should try to get in touch with this guy. So I did, and it turns out that Clipper Erickson is uh, not only incredibly talented, but very, very friendly. So we actually had multiple conversations, uh, and this totaled a few hours of conversation, not just about Nathaniel Det's music, but about some other projects uh, that he is or will be working on, so that will be in part two, but in today's uh, episode... We're going to be talking about Clipper Erickson's experience with Nathaniel Dett's music, but not just that. Um, Erickson also has some fascinating things to say about thinking about music, about how to interpret it, about uh, being in the studio. All of these things, the aesthetic and the process and how he came to know about who this um, unfortunately undersung composer is. And so um, this is our first episode. It's a bit long. There was stuff that I thought I might include in a a second episode but then that would have been too short and so i just put it all together in today's episode about uh clipper erickson's experience and interest in and advocacy of unjustly neglected composer nathaniel debt let's get started hello hello um I, i i'm i'm doing well this is actually not our our first conversation we um had had a a little test conversation that that Went much longer than just a test conversation, um, but I'm very excited that I have a uh, a chance to to chat a little bit with you about this very exciting project um, Kickstarter again. Yeah, yeah. Kickstarter. Had, had you used cool. is really cool, really cool. Had you had you used it before with any other projects, or was this a no. first go?
1: No, this is the first go, and I was clued into it by the recording company. Really would had a couple of other releases that people had done kickstarter campaigns for successfully so i thought this is great because of course you know getting any kind of grant funding is just endlessly fr- frustrating and time consuming sure. but i have a lot of i've been playing debt for some time and i have a lot of people that are interested in it and people that follow me so i thought well this would be a good this would be a great thing to do and it was very successful
0: how awesome. Well, I had, cause I had looked, um, at, at the time, actually, I was interested in kind of seeing, I had some ideas for a campaign of my own that, that never got off the ground, but, um, I had kind of thought like, I don't know if there's a whole lot of classical music stuff on here. So I just kind of searched around keywords for, you know, classical music, this piano, that, and there were some, and probably still are regularly things for funding um you know tuitions or master classes or recitals and things but one of the things similar to what i had kind of been interested in doing is recording recording projects of um kind of little known or never performed or underperformed works because they are timeless yeah so needless to say when the when the nathaniel debt project came up i was very intrigued um what was your initial, you said you've been playing Depp's music for a while. What was your initial uh, exposure? How did, you, how did you get started with, with his work?
1: Well, I've known about Depp for about 15 years, which is not even the majority of my working life. I, right. In the course of my bachelor and master's studies, I'd never run across him. And then I became friendly in the '90s with um, a choir director in the Philadelphia area who who has had these wonderful gospel choirs, and I started getting curious about about black composers. I had played George Walker. A couple of t- a couple of times, um, but I, I started to be, get curious, and he said, "Well, why don't you look at the the debt Juba Dance?" So then I got the the collected works volume to get the Juba Dance, and then started looking at the rest of it and, and playing through it, and thinking, "This is really wonderful stuff. Let's play some more." So I did an early recording of In the Bottoms back in '98. Um, And then started to realize that most of the works had not been recorded, or or at least had only been recorded as one-off recordings, all put together. And then I was in the course of getting my uh, doctorate at at Temple, and, okay, this is a great dissertation topic. So then it was a dissertation topic, and then, okay, then it's time to, like, okay, let's get this all down here. Then that started to get the ball rolling in, in a couple years ago. 2013s when I was doing all the writing and the research and then and then the recording project just kind of happened um I met a wonderful engineer uh who's based in Berlin and he made the contact with the recording company and then it just kind of flowed from there and he found the location in Bavaria with a fantastic piano and acoustics it was just magnificent so oh. I, I wanted to do everything really in first class I'd done a lot of CD work before, but I was never completely happy with the the, the acoustics or the instrument and oh, yeah? so I thought this was too this is too important want to we want to do, we, we do this the best that we can do and It took two trips to Bavaria to get it done because it 's a lot of music, and I knew right. that i didn 't need to record all of it all at one go, so I thought, well we really should should make two trips there, and that that happened in two thousand and fourteen and early 2015, and then it came out at the end of last year. So it was a long process of getting to know gets music, and um, I've gotten a lot of wonderful comments from people who've heard it on the radio or heard me play it in concert, and I'm very happy to be getting the music out there. I think it's very worthwhile.
0: Was it, was it gramophone? There was a review that I read mm-hmm. of, of this. It was a gramophone review, right?
1: Yeah, there's also been an American Record Guide review that just came out that was very, very positive. So it's nice to get that get that press. I don't think American Record Guide is online, but Gramophone is. And it was yeah. also Editor's Choice in January, which is a big deal.
0: Fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Is this his collected piano works? These are, this is his collected stuff for solo piano?
1: There is or was a volume published of his six piano suites, which I had, I've had for about 15 years or so. That's now out of print. And there, and there are also four short pieces, which I had to get, some Some of them I had to get from the Library of Congress. And oh, they're wow. out of, that's in print, the only things that are in print right now, I think, are Magnolia and In the Bottoms. I was going to ask about that as well. You know, but of course, music publishing is kind of a mess right now. It's sure things are falling out of print and publishers aren't printing anything and holding copyrights and it's just not available. But then of course, his last three suites are not in public domain. So you can't upload them on IMSLP. So the first two I think are on IMSLP. Um, But the other, the other three are not.
0: And are these, are these world premiere recordings?
1: Um, in the case of Tropic Winter, yes. Um, there have been recordings before of Magnolia. In the, bo- and the Bottoms, there's several recordings. That's this one best-known piece. And okay. there's Denver Oldham recording of Bible vignettes. And I think someone in Chicago has just, re- just recorded a couple years ago the Cinnamon Grove. But the rest of it had never been done before and nobody's put it all together. Right. And it was really time to do that. How awesome. That's so cool. Yeah. It was a really, it was a really wonderful project. Um, First it started being a dissertation. I was getting my doctorate at temple and here's all this great music and nobody's really written about it. There's two good biographies with information but there's not anybody who's really dug into the piano music and made a dissertation about the whole body of work. So it was a good topic because there was enough information out there to have sources, but not so much that you couldn't say something new. So I, Kinda and as I, a sweet spot of... Yeah, it's a sweet spot for a dissertation because that's what you want. You can't write about Mozart's piano music. Cause it's like, right. you're, you're really going to find that you hasn't been said a hundred times already. And you, it's hard to write about something that there are no sources, like a living composer or a completely unknown composer that there's not much sources about. So sure. this was a really good topic. Um, and also it was good because there were hidden things hidden, which I teased out by looking at, by reading his own writings. He was also a writer. And uh, looking at the music closely, so then that helped me perform it. For instance, the the Church. very last piece of Bible vignettes is a setting of Psalm twenty three, and he doesn't really come out and say that. He right, magical, divine, and then there's kind of a tangential reference of magical being a shepherd song, which evidently he thought, and I don't think that that's actually true, but that's what he thought. <laughs> that it was, a, you know, okay. So that was his definition of a madrigal is that it's a song of, of a shepherd. Um, so, and so there's that. And okay, so shepherd and the piece before that is other sheep that, that has a John quote about uh-huh. other sheep into the fold it's like, okay, so then it starts to click a little bit, and then it's like, oh, Psalm 23, and well, there it is. It's actually a setting. So it's got it's all the text, the text fits. It could be sung. The text fits the fits the King James Version. There's lots wow. of text painting, like a nice dissonant chord on evil and right. you know, stuff like that. So, huh. So that so those are the things that I had to find out. There's also two Negro spirituals in the last movement of Sinningman Grove. He tells you the first one, but not the second one. Interesting. The second one I found by just looking at you know just going through books of Negro spirituals and saying, oh, there's that melody there. It's like a little phrase. Picking it out. Yeah. Okay, but it's about. I don't have much long longer to stay here. And he wrote it in his last years at Hampton. So it's like his own little message saying, I'm not going to be here at Hampton much longer. He was unhappy there. And then reading about him with like, was it Eastman and
0: yeah. Oberlin and Juilliard or was it Harvard or like, how does he get forgotten?
1: Well, oh, there's, there's other things here with debt. Um, first of all, he was a black composer who didn't write jazz. Sure. <laughs> sure. Okay. That—that's already we we put composers into baskets all the time. This even old composer C.P.E. Bach is another one. Right. Right. Who just doesn't? He doesn't fit in a basket. Is he a Baroque composer or a classical composer? Well, he doesn't have a basket, so then we don't know what to do with him. So then we don't play him. So it, it's one of these, it's one of these odd, odd things that he doesn't fit into a basket. And then, of course, um, you know, we have our racial problems here that I think has affected a, a great deal appreciation of his music. Sure. There's a, there's a story about when his oratorio that he wrote as his mas- Eastman master's thesis uh, was first performed in 1937. It was broadcast live, and the broadcast was cut off after 45 minutes. I read about that. Yeah, you read about that about halfway through, because evidently people called to the radio station, complained about spending so much time on a black composer. Hmm. So, so there's that too. And it's, yeah, I I deal with that a little bit in my dissertation. Why, is, why was his music so much forgotten? Because it's sure. really wonderful. It's very beautiful. It's very satisfying to play because he uses the piano so well. Well and
0: so that was one of the things, yes, that I noticed from kind of listening to it all today is that it's, it's not this is not um stephen foster it 's not like simple kind of you know it 's incredible music and and then if you read about um, if you read about him on Wikipedia and you took his name out and you replaced it you know with a blank space, and you read about the accomplishments that he had and the the university experience that he had and where he studied and who he studied with people would go surely i know who this is you well, know they,
1: yeah, but no you don't but you don't yeah but he does, he doesn't fit categories very well and he I think he, more than anyone else, embodied what Dvorak challenged American composers to do. Det of course, had his um, epiphany at Oberlin when he heard the American Quartet. That's, that's early music, which is last on the CD. I put them, put them last to be sort of like dessert. They're like little encores, his little early ragtime piece and his waltzes and stuff. They're very period music. He was very gifted. So he just picked up whatever he heard around him, which was that kind of music. And when he went to conservatory, when he went to Oberlin, he heard the the Dvorak American Quartet. And that completely changed his life around. And the rest of his life was all about taking Negro spirituals and that style of music and fusing it with the European art tradition. And that's what Dvorak challenged American composers to do. And Depp fulfilled that more than anyone else, I think. That's my opinion.
0: Um, looking at, uh, let's see, there's Magnolia in the bottoms, Enchantment. Um, this this might betray a little bit of my ignorance here. Um, what I do not see is anything with the name Sonata and a number. Um, was there a specific reason, do you think, why, why there weren't kind of those typical forms and labels given to uh, his music? Or, or do pieces like Enchantment have some of that kind of typical Sonata structure and layout?
1: Well, that's a good question. First of all, Det is known to have performed one or two sonatas of his own composing. Really? These are lost. These are lost. Oh, no. So I've spent a lot of time emailing around to various places, including Eastman, Oberlin, the Granger Connection in Australia, to see if, by any chance, there's a manuscript lying around there somewhere to, to see what these sonatas are, but did de- compose two sonatas that are lost oh, and you, how never, sad. you never know about these things. I mean, Bach chorales and Haydn sonatas are showing up once in a while, and somebody's True. drunk. You know, I, sometimes I wondered about that that story about the Nazi train in Poland, right. The hidden Nazi train in some tunnel, and thinking about, well, maybe there's a Haydn sonata in there, something <laughs> left over. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you never know. But it's, it's true; it's possible that it will that those will show up. It would be wonderful to see what he would have done. But in fact, the the middle two suites, Enchantment and Cinnamon Grove, are sonata like particularly Cinnamon Grove. Right. Well, that's kind of what,
0: what at least to my mind, you, oh, it's, you know, you see it's in four movements that you, you kind of begin to think that there might be something like that kind of in there.
1: Yeah. So it, there, he's thinking along that line, particularly Cinnamon Grove is very much like, a Haydn-esque kind of sonata. You have a very quiet first movement and then you have a slow movement and then you have a scherzo and then you have a quick two, four last movement. So there's something vaguely symphonic or sonata like in going on in there. But then that brings the important discussion about, well, what's the difference between a suite and a sonata? Well, but usually a sonata has some kind of thematic idea that holds things together, at least in the, the Beethoven world. Right. And I'm not sure that Depp's really thinking about that. He's thinking more in terms of pictures that have some kind of theme, some kind of idea that connects them, but not any, but not a musical idea. Right. Brent- Cinnamon Grove is all about poets. So there's kind of an external program that holds it together, but there's not so much musical things that hold it together. Right. At least enchantment there is because there are themes um, that get recycled in later movements.
0: What is it about um, in, in his, through his career, kind of his evolution from his early works to his late works, like you mentioned earlier, some choral harmonies and things as he developed, um, did his language become more complex, more transparent, more adventurous?
1: I think it became more, more um, deep, um, complex. Yeah, more complex. I think definitely, it didn't get more transparent. Sure, he becomes much more involved with counterpoint. There's a lot of counterpoint going on in Bible vignettes um there 's not so much counterpoint in his early stuff um, and more thick textures in in the keyboard sure big chords and is that just maybe you think uh
0: a result of being more confident in kind of you know what he was writing or or more experience
1: or I think it has to do with his life, I think his early life he he was a very happy social person. He was kind of a party guy. And so the Magnolia bears that out. It's very bubbly. It's very happy. Even the darker parts of Magnolia, they're not lugubrious or brooding like Tchaikovsky. Sure. Or they're, just kind of color. they're just kind of like a dark color. But then you get to Bible vin- vignettes and even Enchantment, the, the music starts to get heavier. It starts to get deeper. And he, sure. he has a tough life.
0: Well, the first movement is called Incantation.
1: (laughs) Yeah, and that's that's um, the enchantment is about Rosicrucians. He was involved with the Rosicrucians.
0: Oh, I didn't uh, I didn't read about that.
1: Yeah, so he that's about a Rosicrucian initiation ceremony. the The score has a picture of an Egyptian temple with the the Egyptian sun god Ra, the symbol with the the wings on the top that so okay that's immediately telling you something's going on so then he writes a program it's not a long piece i'm looking
0: at it here on my computer and those those four movements total total not even 20 minutes um but it's it's big music
1: oh yeah it's very
0: heavy rich intense you know it's not like easy listening kind of kind of stuff yeah, um,
1: the last movement kind of is, but the rest of it sure, is... Sure, yeah, yeah. It grabs your attention. It's It has an intensity to it. He wrote it for Granger. Granger was... Uh, Percy Granger. Yeah, Percy Granger. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. And they Granger popularized Death's pieces. He played the Juba dance everywhere. There's a cool um, piano roll of Granger playing Juba dance on uh, YouTube. And um, Granger was a disciple of Greek. So I think... Your is really picking up on Greek style and Liszt style and putting that together into a piece for Granger. I definitely oh. did think of Liszt, yeah. Yeah, the, well, the the third movement is classic. It's actually kind of light Liszt. It's folky Liszt because he uses all the Liszt. It's the bacchanal, you know, like the like um, the, the Liszt Faust Symphony, like yeah. the. Galileo's Symphony Fantastique because he takes other melodies, other themes from earlier in the piece and transforms them into this, this kind of witch's brew dance kind of thing. And that's just a, that's a classic genre of, of uh, 19th century music. Unfortunately, by the time 1922 rolls around, this is old hat. People are not into this anymore. And that's why, I think that's why debt's music kind of gets passed over because there's a big revolution in music in the 1920s and all the people that were active before that, um, kind of get pushed out. Tossed aside. Tossed aside. There are very, I mean, if you, if you look at history, there are very few composers who are active, like really creatively active before and after world war one. It's a really big dividing line in musical style because musical style after world war one, radically different. And yeah. either you had people like Schoenberg, who were already in the 1920s ahead of time, or you had people who basically, like Rachmaninoff, who just basically wrote music from the 1890s on through into the 1920s. Into yeah, his career, yeah. Yeah, so you didn't, you know, there was a big change, and people either went with the change or they didn't. And Depp was still very much into the late 19th century style. His um his later music, like you'll hear in um, Tropic Winter, is a little more experimental and Bible vignettes. There's some gentle chordal harmonies, there's some a lot of whole tone chords and stuff, but I mean next to Stravinsky or Ornstein, it's very it's very tame. Sure. Uh, because that's not really what, what debt's after. Debt is after composing music that has meaning. His Bible vignettes is a sermon to um about the oneness of humanity and the way that he's weaved the woven the Bible stories together, right?
0: And is that is that kind of his? You said that his kind of his his biggest piece was the was the oratorio. But of his piano stuff, would would the Bible vignettes be kind of his his magnum opus for for solo yeah. piano? Yeah, it's yes, certainly.
1: It's long. It, enchantment's very easy to program. It's like less than twenty minutes, so it's easy to. Yeah. But thirty-seven minutes—that's a whole half.
0: Yeah, that's a big—that's a big chunk of a program.
1: Like programming a Schubert sonata, it takes a lot of—it uh, takes a lot of the program up. So it's a little bit of a risk to do it, but it's a really marvelous piece.
0: Is it a—is it a piece that's that would be amenable to uh, selections? What do you I, think about I think that? It
1: is. There are certain, yeah, but that's the amazing thing about the uh, about that piece and about some other pieces that have been uh, written in the past, like character character piece sets. You can right. take pieces out of them and they stand beautifully on their own. But if you play all of them, then that just adds more. Sure. There are certain things like, say, Schumann Carnival that if you take some of them out, then they really don't mean much. Right, outside uh, of the, the whole. You have to play the whole thing to really see how they, how they work. But right. But other things like Brahms, Intermezzo, and Capriccio, you can take them singly and they're wonderful by themselves, or they're just that much better if you put them in the set. And I think that's the case with Bible vignettes, that you see, I have on occasion taken pieces of them out, and they're very effective. It just adds more if you do them as a set. And keep in mind that it's, I don't mention this in the liner notes, but it was written in 1942-1943, the exact same year that the Messiaen Quartet for the End of Time was written. And oh, wow, they that's right. both have eight movements, and they both have the same numerical symbolism of what eight is.
0: Oh, that's fascinating, because I have just been doing lots of research on, on him and Boulez and, and some of that, that crowd. Very interesting.
1: And Messiaen, I, I can't imagine that the two two knew of each other. I suppose it's vaguely possible that Det knew something about Messiaen because he went for one summer to study with Boulanger. But that was right. in the before Messiaen was even on the map. So I'm, I don't think Det knew anything about Messiaen. But they both came up with this idea on their own. And it was so wild. World War II, you know, when...
0: Yeah, when you know, he was... He was apocalyptic,
1: uh, apocalyptic hopeful music about eight being super abundant, seven plus one. So, and they have they have the same meaning, the same meaning of eight. And the interesting thing about the Bible vignettes is vignettes is... It's hard to get past the title. Vignettes usually means something like a trifle. Right inconsequential but it's very consequential and i think it, it's uh, there, there's a lot I, I think there's a lot in debt's world about um hidden meanings and this kind of, this i think comes from spirituals there are a lot of hidden meanings in spiritual sure. and the idea of writing a piece of music and not telling people right out there what what it's about is kind of Make them work for it. <laughs> I think you make you work for it to find it and tease out what the meaning is, and that's what I had to do in my dissertation. I found out things about that whole set that nobody had talked about before, and it's in the keeping of of this hidden meaning idea. And
0: and you mentioned that um, passages from vignettes because it is such a such a large piece. You said you you've programmed uh, selections from them. What what selections? Uh, if you're going to perform only certain vignettes, which of them do you program?
1: I often program the first three father abraham uh desert interlude and as his own soul and then conclude with uh madrigal divine the last one okay so i often put that comes to what about 16 minutes or so so i often put those four together in concert when i don't have enough room in the program to do the whole 40 minute set
0: right and and what do you what do you pair with 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 Nathaniel Dett? Say you do the whole 8 Bible vignettes for one of the Habs, what do you what do you put him with in a program?
1: Um, I often put Beethoven, Chopin, some more traditional stuff. Or mm. I I'm, I'm sort of a specialist in Ameri- in American music some at sometimes. So I can put uh, the Barber Sonata or even Gershwin along with with Okay. Dett. Sure. Um, and I do a lot of new works like David Finco, uh, Laurie Altman, the Zurich-based composer. I've done a lot of recording of his his music. He's sort of a modern jazz-influenced person, a really fascinating composer, very different from Det obviously. Um, so I often put these things together into an American program. Because again, that's a, a kind of music that doesn't get, I don't think, gets a full attention is American composers.
0: We talked a little bit um, about... Um, programming it and about kind of uh, how de 's music became you know more complex through his career but the the overall impression that I have is that it 's not um, or that it is rather let 's say it is very approachable it 's something that right. that is easy to get
1: well it 's very approachable it has very strong roots in the late romantic period um, his teachers at Oberlin were very much in the, the Schumann, Brahms, Bach, Beethoven world, and that's right. what he grew up with. So a lot of the music is very firmly rooted in that. You can hear a lot of McDowell. You can hear Amy Beach. You can hear Grieg, a little bit of Liszt. A lot of those influences are there, um, but his language is is very much infused with uh, with spirituals. There's something really unique about it. Yeah, well, that's... You see, the history of of spirituals is a very interesting and tortured one. When debt was alive, um, Negro spirituals were in uh, some danger of being forgotten, believe it or not, in their original form when debt came on the scene. Because what happened is, it, is, people like Stephen Foster popularized that style, right, and he got involved in blackface minstrel shows, and so it was just basically thought of as being disreputable like racist and so so blacks didn't have anything to do with it because whites were making fun of it and degrading it and and the whites were just kind of using it for entertainment and nobody was really looking at what this music means and and finding the incredible beauty that are, are in some of these melodies most of them and it was left to people like debt and John work and others to to bring this forward. And we kind of forget that because we take it for granted. Like, Oh, well I know about go tell it on the mountain and swings low, sweet chariot and all that right. stuff. Everybody yeah. you know, knows that stuff, but, but they didn't, or they only knew it through some kind of racist filter.
0: Cause I think maybe if, in some cases, you were to say, let's take this kind of sort of, like you said, list Brahms, Grieg, that kind of thing, and let's, let's put it in, in a different context. I think some people might be, by, by hearing about it on paper, for example, might be unconvinced of how that could work.
1: Well, it, it works because of Depp's personality and his creative genius. And, yeah, okay, so the idea of like, oh, well, let's take some Negro spirituals and let's make it sound like Grieg, that sounds kind of bogus. Right. But Depp that, that is, is using, using that line. He very rarely actually quotes a tune. There's only three or four instances in all the piano music where he's actually quoting something. The rest of it is just the style, and in that way, right. very much like Dvorak and other nationalist composers, where they don't typically use use melodies outright. Um, yeah, outright, they use that style, and they make it their own. It was it, it was his expression of his life. And um, and his world and music wasn't really the only thing that he did. He was also a writer and a poet, so he was creative in many other ways besides composing. So he, it's important to know what what other things he wrote about and what his what his spirit was because right. that informs his music and helps you interpret it and get into his world but i think i think his life very much informs his music so in that way he's kind of like beethoven like the way his life proceeds influences his right. music and he he has a lot he has a difficult life he got fired from hampton he worked there for 20 years and brought that chor- chorus up so that they he could take them on tour to carnegie hall the library of congress and finally to europe in 1930 So he was like everything to that school. And then they fire him. And for mysterious reasons that we don't know, I have my own suspicions of what it was, but that's just conjecture, but it was really hard and he was not happily married. And there's stories of him taking his choir on tour. And of course they're making all the black kids come in through the black, the back door and then there's, I mean, it's odd. Some of the the articles saying we're going to have a wonderful concert by by uh, Dr. Dett and his terrific choir. And, oh, there'll be a section just for white people in the audience. My goodness. Like, well, you just kind of like your jaw drops. It's like it's such a disconnect. It's like you're extolling this marvelous music, and then you won't sit next to them. It's just this Yeah, you arc. would take think- it's just bizarre, and well, that yeah, that's, that that makes your life hard. What about what about him
0: as as a performer? Because because the the list of the performer informed very much list the composer. You know, he he was able to to perform the kind of stuff that he wrote. Rachmaninoff with giant hands was able to to perform the things that he wrote. Um, was was his? Is there anything in his style or ability that kind of informed? the kind of music that he wrote or would he have been
1: Uh, that played his own music all the time. Uh, So I think, yeah, I think his own playing very much informed what he wrote and particular sensitivity to piano textures. I mean, it's really wonderful piano writing the way he uses textures is particularly in the later pieces. If you listen to Bible, some of the textures like single melodies and wonderful chord voicings is His his sensitivity to texture. If you listen to um, the beginning of Martha, that's the sixth movement of vital vignettes, he uh-huh. has this ostinato kind of arpeggio-like thing going on in the left hand, and the right hand has a blues melody far above, so they're very far apart. And it's a very unique texture, and it sounds rather shrill on the piano to have the accompaniment and the melody that far apart. Right. It's not, a, it's not a texture you find in Chopin nocturnes. Usually, the, the accompaniment and the melody are not so far apart in pitch. But here, he wants shrillness because Martha is a shrill character, <laughs> right? So he's expressing that that shrillness through the piano texture, and that's really wonderful. So
0: he never did any um, concertos, any any concertante stuff, did yeah. he?
1: Now, he was not comfortable with orchestra writing. The only full orchestra piece is the oratorio. Right. Which he wrote for his thesis. And But besides that, there are no orchestral pieces. There are piano pieces. There's plenty of choral music. And there's vocal pieces. There's uh, spiritual arrangements and popular songs. William Grant still was much more of an orchestra person. Right. He wrote more things, for, or even Ulysses K. so he was much more in the orchestra world. Det was very much in the choral, choral world, in, in academia, in his, his life, so that was his product. He did not write any, which is kind of too bad, but, well, that was his personality. It's, you know, he didn't sure. have the personality of somebody who would write a symphony. It's, his music is too intimate, it's too personal
0: the um the, the two albums i I always say the album because in in my computer the two of them are you know combined in, uh, by by performer and composer, but it's the two albums um are his his piano works, but he also has uh, some choral works in the oratorio this as as far as kind of a, a total collected piano works does not seem like it's a lot of
1: music um he composed he he was not a hugely prolific composer mostly because he had a very stressful and busy life his right. his career was in black academia and he worked sometimes 50 60 hours a week at teaching so there was simply not a lot of time left over for him to compose right and considering those those difficulties and those restrictions what he created is really amazing and there is a lot of choral music. There is at least as much choral music and vocal music as there is piano music. You,
0: That's what I was going to ask, yeah.
1: There's the oratorio, which is at least an hour, and there's probably a few dozen motets and arra- spiritual arrangements. So if you put all that down on record, you probably would come up with more time even than the piano music. Sure, yes my engineer in berlin dirk fischer is uh, his next project is to record all of the vocal music yes yeah, he was so,
0: convinced by the by the success of the piano stuff yeah.
1: he wants he's he's interested in getting we're, we're looking at a couple of singers i don't know i might do the piano parts there there's a wonderful body of about 27 songs some are spiritual based and some are not
0: and has the choral stuff been? Uh, has it been recorded as well before, or will some of these yes, also be I don't premieres?
1: Think all of it has, but okay. Choral in Toronto has, is a marvelous group, and they have recorded several of, of Det's um, uh, choral works. Um, speaking,
0: speaking of Canada, Nedet was born in Canada, was he not?
1: Yes, he was. So born he's in the
0: technically Canadian, I guess.
1: Yeah. So, well, I for a while there, I was calling him African American. And on YouTube, somebody corrected me: African Canadian, because yeah, oh, yeah, that's, true, I, that would be
0: African Canadian, yeah, right?
1: Because he was born in Canada, and as the re- reason for that is he was descended from Underground Railroad refugees. So his right, his ancestors on his mother's side crossed over sometime in the mid nineteenth century into Niagara, into Canada, and there's a lot of Underground Railroad history in Canada, a lot of settlement. Right. Harriet Tubman sites um, in Can- all over Canada. It's kind of interesting wh- how far these settlements go. The, the history is really fascinating. But debt was right on the border there, so of course I needed to travel to Niagara Falls to the the library on the New York side where his papers are, and his gravesite is on the Canadian side. Oh, so that that's I needed to go there to to see where where his homeland is.
0: And, and most of his career was in America, though, correct? He, he moved yeah. back when he was, okay.
1: Yeah, he grew up on the New York side. At some point around 10 years old, his family moved to the New York side. Right. And then he studied at Oberlin and taught at Hampton in Virginia. That was his longest tenure for 20 years there and at a couple other colleges in the South. So most of his career was lived in the American South, places like Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia. Um, then he had a uh, residence for a while in Rochester, New York, after he got his degree at Eastman. So, yeah, but he traveled back to ca- Canada many times for, for concerts and he had commissions for vocal works and choral works from Canadians.
0: It's, it's so uh, every time we mention you know, Eastman and, and Oberlin and Juilliard and these, what an incredible career. And then, and then to, you know, like you mentioned to be in danger of, of going into obscurity. Um,
1: well, that's, yeah, there, there's a lot of reasons for that, as we discussed before, yeah. I think. And I'm not sure what exactly what it is, but it's, there's a lot of reasons. He, you can't pigeonhole him as a black composer who writes jazz, and some of it is just simply out-and-out racism that when black composers don't get taken seriously. Sure. And part of it also is uh, the piano music is maybe not so suitable for competitions because it's very poetic and individual. Right and, and personal and those things are difficult in competitions. Prokofiev's sonata sure. is much more useful because you can play them fast and bang them, and they're all very, they're all very impressive. Right, and not too many different ways you can play them. In Death's music, you could play some of the pieces in innumerable different ways.
0: Well, that was kind of that was something I wanted to ask as well. Is his music? Um different than than other things in your repertoire was anything different or challenging about kind of getting into his into his space
1: um i think that the most challenging thing was to understand uh, particularly some of the later works like what his motivation was like what he's what he's getting at and that's often difficult with with composers, but, but in older composers like Beethoven, those paths have already been trodden by generations of great artists. Right. And you already have like a lot of the different parameters of how things could be done. But in death's world, well, there, it's, you're pioneering. So you're trying to discover it on your own without really a guidepost. You're trailblazing to go by. And is there a freedom in that? There's a freedom and there's a risk, you know, sure. it's a little scary because you don't know, like, well, am I getting this right or not? Because, okay, nobody else has done it. So it's not like you can say, you can either follow another person's idea or rebel against it. You, you're, you're it. You're making right. this. And sometimes you don't know whether you really have done it the way that, that the composer wants. And what I stress to my students and to myself is that it's critical to understand the composer and their world when you perform a piece of music. You can't, what, what goes on now oftentimes is, is uh, students come in with a piece of music and they'll say, oh, I heard so-and-so do this on YouTube and they do this and, this <laughs> thing on YouTube does that and well, they played it really fast and I have to play it that fast. But then you ask them something about the composer, and they have no idea. It's like, okay, they just listen to a bunch of stuff on YouTube, and they're just copying what somebody else did. But they don't have any tools to construct their own approach to the piece.
0: What's the danger in that? And in someone, instead of kind of finding their own interpretation, they said, well, I listened to this or that pianist, and, and that's how I decided it's going to be interpreted.
1: Well, the, the danger is, is that, for one thing, it's not, not ever convincing. If you just simply copy what somebody else does, it's never convincing because it sure. it, it, only, it doesn't come from you. You're just copying, and it's not it. You haven't really understood the music in depth. Right. That's that's what you have to do that in order to come up with a convincing com, um, interpretation. And it's especially difficult in our art because we're recreating something that was created. 250 years ago in some cases like well how do, you, <laughs> right. how do you play a beethoven sonata well okay the music or mozart or bach or something is written 200 years 250 years ago how how do you recreate that it's like our world is very different from their world so you have to somehow understand the human motivations and the emotions that go into the creation of the piece in order to recreate it and, and so- yeah, bring it bring it to life yeah. In order to bring it to life. Um, so that's, you know, that's interpret interpretive matters and aesthetics and stuff like what what we do as a performing art when we recreate something. Right. Because the music, music only lives in time. It doesn't have any meaning at all unless it's performed. It's only in the time right now that you're, that it's it being, is happening. It's happening. So in order to recreate that, that art, you have to get connected with the composer, the time, the social environment that the music was created in, who was listening to it, who's consuming the music. So all that stuff is very, very important to understand. I'm very much into history. And I, I battle a little bit because right now in our world, I think we're losing that, even if it's a wonderful performance. You can learn a lot from listening to people on YouTube because then you can hear like, oh, yeah, this could be done or that could be done. and but you still have to approach the music from your own heart. And with that, that's, that's what you have to do. You have to understand who, who he was and what his world was. What is it
0: like in a situation where you're kind of, you know, giving someone a first impression of a work, what's the, what's the approach like? Are you free to kind of do it the way you want to do it? Or how do you kind of inform your own interpretation?
1: Um, you're you're much more free, I think, to, and it, because you have to own it, and really right. in reality, it should be that way with even playing standard repertoire stuff. You really sure. have to it your own. You can't just simply say, "Oh well, I gotta," you know, hit somebody else's metronome mark of how fast they played something on YouTube. <laughs> I mean you have, you can't have that attitude. You have to make it your own. Right. You have to say what you're what you're saying through the music, whether it's a Beethoven sonata that everybody's heard a hundred times, or whether it's debt that, that nobody's heard. Right. You have to make it your own. Because the 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 art only exists at the time that that you're playing it. It exists only in that time. So what somebody else did doesn't matter when you're playing it. It's already playing. irrelevant, yeah. Like it's th- it's right now and it's you, it's not anybody else. What what's it
0: like to um to record it from the standpoint of being different from a recital the the kind of energy and the nerves of going up on stage and how do you kind of channel that in a in a recording setting?
1: Well, actually, it, the funny thing is, I think some. Uh, people would agree with me that recording is actually more nerve wracking in some cases than, than performing. Really? Because, yeah, because when you record something, you have to listen to yourself. So every little blemish and thing that, that you don't like, you have to listen to yourself, make that mistake. When you right. play it in public, well then it, you know, if something goes a little awry, then it's like it's it's, here and it's gone. <laughs> and you know, most people don't even, don't even notice it. It doesn't matter. Right expression and the overall the overall in, uh, impression of the music that's important not whether you you know whether you have a little slip here or a missed note there but in a recording you want everything to be perfect so then you you listen to it and you think oh my god how come I, you know how come I didn't do better there so it's a little nerve wracking and usually I do my best in recording after I've taken one or two takes first then I get into the groove and it's also hard because you don't have the audience there right you have the audience, then that energizes you. And there's that communication flow that goes on. What did, what did you record on? Um, I recorded on a Hamburg Steinway and it was a wonderful one. And it was particularly good for death's music. It wasn't like a super beefy instrument. I no. would probably not want to record Rachmaninoff or something that you need a real beast for, <laughs> but it's very colorful, very sensitive and very colorful. So, and death 's music is exactly that. It's right. very, cool. he uses the piano in very delicate art, artistic and and textural ways. And that particular instrument was perfect for that. Cool. So it was very well chosen. And I, I, ch- I went there sight unseen that the engineer picked it. And the I was very happy that Dirk Fischer, who was in Berlin, he was a fantastic engineer, and he picked the location, and he knew exactly what he was doing. It was a really good good choice. And then we ha- also had a great technician. That's really important to have a, a great technician who's sitting there. And so every time a note is just a little bit out, then he's right there to fix this and fix that. And he's, like, there all the time. I guess it's a different world when you're mic'd up and, you know,
0: doing yeah. laying, it, laying it down on record.
1: Well, exactly. It's like you don't you have to have a technician there because you, you if if that note goes even slightly out of tune, you don't want that on the recording. Right? It's in, there forever. You know, it's there forever. But in in a performance, okay, well, things start to go out a little bit after you've been playing on it for for right. a half an hour, but it really doesn't, you know, unless it's really egregious, it's not going to spoil the the effect of the performance. And so,
0: um, how long? What, what was the time that you spent in, in this in the studio? Kind of in in total, you said it was it was twice. Um, yeah,
1: two trips, and there were two two full days each trip. So there were, there were full full days.
0: Wow, that seems fast.
1: It is fast, but I knew the music, so sure, sure, sure. I mean, if you show up and you don't, you don't know the music well, okay, well then you, of course, your engineer is going to have to edit and splice like a million times to fix all your problems. And you don't really have a convincing performance. And that's, that's not the way to go. Um, You need to play the music. I played all of the music several times in, in performances first. Right, right. Or you perform first, then you record. Some people do it. I've heard that some people do it the other way around. They make the recording and then, oh well, I'm going to have some concerts and I'm going to play this repertoire. So let's record it so I can sell it at the concert. But then it's never as convincing after you, until you've played it several times.
0: What is the what is the response like from when you program these in recitals?
1: Uh, it's always very positive. People, it has to be love, it, love the music. They love it and they wonder sometimes why, why don't, why doesn't this music get played and why people that, don't know. That was going to be my question is, do you get, why, who is this guy? Yeah, I get it all the time.
0: And is there, what, what's the satisfaction in, in kind of being, uh, being a, being an ambassador or a representative for, for this kind of, you know, this composer?
1: Well, the satisfaction is, is doing something that needs to be done. Right. This is a recording that needed to be made another recording of piano works by list doesn't need to be made, you know, or another recording of the list B minor sonata. Okay. Well, it's maybe fun to do, but it doesn't need to be done. This needs to be done. Right. You need to know about this music. And there's not, not a reason why a good reason why it should be lying in obscurity. So I'm doing something that matters. That's, that's important. It's not at, at my, when you get to a certain point, then it's not good enough to just be another young ingenue. It's like, you want to leave something that matters. Like that, if you're adding something to the musical conversation. Right. No, that's a very, that's a very good way to put it. Another
0: cycle of Beethoven sonatas or something to me is not nearly as um, inspiring or motivating as, as the presentation of, of your project that said, this is work that, needs to be recorded needs to be heard uh and to be preserved that's that's incredibly compelling especially once you hear it
1: yeah and that that was that's made my life that much more rich
0: very nice and so um i understand that you have some other projects uh kind of we haven't talked about it much but kind of similar along along these lines um underperformed non-performed a little bit more obscure Uh, kind of stuff.
1: Uh, My next project is to do some recording of Laurie Altman's music. He's, he's a big sonata writer. I've recorded his fifth sonata several years ago, and now I'm doing his seventh sonata, which is titled Tanzania and has uh, Tanzania folk song running through the, running through the piece. Wow. But it's very difficult. It's very difficult music. It's, it's not, not easy to, to rap, for me to wrap around as a performer. He never writes two measures with the same time signature next to each other.
0: So that is the end of our conversation today about Nathaniel Dett's music. Please, please, please go check out My Cup Runneth Over, Clipper Erickson's recordings of the music of Nathaniel Dett. It's fantastic. It's really incredible. I think when you listen to it... Uh, you, too, will be surprised that this has not been made, uh, you know, world famous already. But uh, like Mr. Erickson said, uh, there's music from Laurie Altman, Cyril Scott, David Finco. Uh, he didn't say that in this episode, but uh, I have the second conversation that we had. Stay tuned for that um, probably in the next couple of weeks. Episodes I had actually originally intended to do only once a month, um, but that was far too infrequent. Um Two weeks even seems kind of a little bit infrequent just because I have so much stuff that I have listened to from people that I'm eager to share. Uh, So stay tuned. Um, Currently, we're uploading around every 10 days or 14 days at the most um, for new episodes. So um, like us on Facebook, find Clipper Erickson online, and share the podcast with your friends or anyone who you think would be interested. That's all for me today. It's been a long episode. See you next time. Bye-bye.